leveraged means somebody borrows money to invest in the market. Right. Or into uh, anything. Like you're leveraged in your house if you have a mortgage. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill them all up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure, where we may be heard to say embarrassing things. Like we deem. Yes, we do. So before we start talking about what we like to talk about. We have to talk about other things that we kind of like to talk about. Disclosures. Yeah, we're weird. Why do we like this to talk about disclosures? Because um, part of what we do, and we'll even talk about that in the disclosure, uh, the Personal Wealth Coach is the name of this program. It's also the name of the business that is represented by the same two guys that are talking on the radio. The personal wealth coach. The business is registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission as an investment advisor. What does that mean? It means it has to offer fiduciary advice and fully disclose conflicts of interest and all fees and compensation. Okay, that's working with individual people. We can't do that on the radio. So even though we're the firm and the people representing the firm are the same people as on the radio here, this is an educational program rather than advice. We're not going to tell you what you should buy or sell on here because that would be advice and we don't know who you are. It'd be like saying nobody should buy a backhoe. Well, some people clearly need to buy a backhoe and other people it would be a serious waste of their money. So just because that firm and we are registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC has in any way given their approval or attaboy to us. That's just the regulatory authority. It's like, that'd be like saying, I do my taxes through the IRS so they like me. Nope, that's not what government does. Sorry. <laughs> um, so uh, saying that this is educational even though the firm's registered as fiduciary. Also, if we're giving advice on the air, you could probably sue us because everybody's listening and advice that we give has to be customized to the person. That'd be a bit serious privacy violation, all kinds of issues there. That's why we like to give disclosures. On this educational program, we come up with information. Would you like to tell them about that information? Wow, that was an impressive disclosure. Um, <laughs> The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to its accuracy or completeness. That was that was also quite a disclosure. Mm -hmm. I think probably news broadcasts should have that disclosure. Yeah, why regulated by the SEC? Why do you like giving that disclosure so much? I don't know. Why do I like doing what I do so much? I don't know. Why do I like? Why do I like? digging through lots and lots and lots of mutual funds and trying to find the what I think will be the best performers in the lowest cost mutual funds. Because we're weird. Why do, I, it's, it's why. why do I get a big thrill out of allocating portfolios and meeting with I don't know. I say, weird. I say the word Excel to some people and they turn green in the face and look like they're going to um, show me what they ate. 
And I get this feeling of fluttery butterflies when I think about spreadsheets. Now, for some reason, I'm still able to speak to people in a semi-coherent way where most of my friends that are Excel people will speak to me in Excel language. And when we leave that language, it gets very awkward. So I don't know. I, I am gifted in being able to translate Excel. That's another disclosure. There we go. Yes. Um, disclosure in that we like to read prospectuses. Weird. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, now you've gone beyond my kin. That's too hard even for you? I don't like to read prospectuses. I like reading about prospectuses from people who read prospectuses. But it's a real pain in the butt to read a prospectus because it is the, it is not written to be read by normal human beings. Yeah, so this is why I like to read them. I point at them occasionally and go, I know what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this little like, I'll get you. I know, I know. So that's another, another disclosure. That's a disclosure, yeah. We're yeah, about who we are. We're also bald. Um, Jeff is bald with a white beard, and Jake is bald with a salt and mostly, pepper mostly black mostly pepper little salt much, your beard is much longer than mine yes uh your age is much older than mine so jeff is my dad i'm jake and most people don't know that in listening to this program we have been working together for 31 years and we're both alive still which is amazing father son Teams generally end in mayhem, homicide investigations and things like that. Somehow we're still hanging out. Speaking of reading prospectuses. Oh, we got we do have to get to the market too. I mean, but what? We just go got ahead. our question from the guy you were concerned might oh, be yes. ill today. We, yes, we were concerned about you, Inquisitor John, because we hadn't received one yet. We were Hoping you were okay. Man, that is an interesting question. We'll get to that. Yes. I'm, All right. This is a good one. It's about invested in le investing in leveraged assets. We'll, we'll get to that one. It's leveraged a... assets. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll explain why we think that is humorous. Uh, Look, a a cold sweat broke out on my forehead. When it's the nervous laughter of why would anyone do that to themselves? All right. Uh, so we do have a question, though, from Inquisitor John. We were worried, John. This is... We, we don't want to give you any pressure or anything, but you're so consistent that when we didn't get one before the program, we were concerned. We were concerned. We, I, would have, I would have called afterwards to find out if you were okay. So John's emailed us this question. The subject is triple leveraged ETF. Saw this investment in the Wall Street Journal. How can something triple leveraged be an investment? And he has quotes around triple, triple leveraged and quotes around investment. Um, would you like to answer this how what is tripled and what is triple leveraged anyway well leveraged means somebody borrows money to invest in the market right or into uh, anything like you're leveraged in your house if you have a mortgage what you're actually talking about is something that is a is a product that's offered by a company called pro shares and it's it's called a 3x etf um the, in, the the purpose in that is if you are absolutely positive that the stock market is going to go up and you were to purchase a triple leveraged ETF. Theoretically, if the market went up 5%, your investment would go up 15%. So that's the theoretical. Because you have only one third 
of the money that was invested was actually your money that was invested. And two thirds of the money was money that was borrowed from someplace else. Now it doesn't quite work out that way because the people from whom the money is borrowed charge interest. So it's not quite three times, but that was, that's, that's the whole idea. That's why it's called three X. Now the, the problem of course is if the market goes down, wait, no, not if, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I mean, during the period you own it. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. If it goes down during the period you own it, yes. If it goes down 5%, you lose 15%. And if it goes down a bunch, and, and bunch is a scientific term that we use to generalize about things, the whole thing could shut down, and you could lose everything. Here's one of the factors involved in leverage. Why, first, why is it called leverage? When you, this early invention by uh bald apes archimedes uh the bald apes is a group got together and said we will use this stick to pick up that rock easier uh taking a loan from someone is borrowing their energy if you will or leveraging their assets and your assets to buy something and you have an agreement that you will pay them back if you're triple leveraged that means that you owe three times as much. And there are rules in the market because during the crash of 1929, I know that was a long time ago, we're getting up on 100 years. We, neither of us personally remember it, but we've studied it a lot. There was no limitation on how much you could borrow against your portfolio. So you could borrow 150% of the value of your portfolio, but when the market cratered, you couldn't pay any of it back. So not only did you lose your value, the lenders lost their value. So it tripled, in many cases, the losses. Well, the government got together in the way governments do. They generally make changes after things break, and it thoroughly broke there. So they got together, and they came up with a series of laws and regulations on banks and loans. Generally, the regulations are put together under one big clause called Reg T which means if you're borrowing money to invest it in the marketplace, you're limited on how much you can borrow against your portfolio to 50%. That's Reg T. You can only borrow half of the value of your portfolio. And when you your portfolio drops enough that you've got more than 50% borrowed, something called a margin call occurs where uh, the person you have borrowed from, usually some big corporation, calls you and says, what do you want to sell? And you say, I don't want to sell anything right now. The market's down. Well, you're below your uh, collateral value. So you need to sell something to bring your liquid value up. But if I sell now, it's going to be at a big loss. So you have a forced fire sale when the market's down on leveraged money. And when it's triple leveraged, that forced fire sale comes... It's more like a bomb-induced tornado fire sale rather than fire sale. Uh, And that can cause highly leveraged portfolios to just simply collapse in value. And it can cause the overall market to drop faster because of those forced sales because the market's down. That was a very long-winded explanation of leveraging and the risks of it. So how this back to the question, how can something that's triple leveraged as an ETF be called an investment? It isn't really in many, in many senses. Uh, if you, let me give you, it, it's a speculatory purchase. Now, let me give you an example of why we don't do that. 
if in January 1st you had bought a triple leveraged ETF, I just looked at the prime triple leveraged ETF that's out there, and I think it's the one to which he is referring. Um, your loss in the market right now, so far this year, would be about 59%. That's even with the recovery that we've seen over the past month? Yes. Yep, still from, down 59%. From January 1st to today, had you held that ETF thinking, and a lot of people did think at the beginning of the year, the market's going to go up this year, big time, because it went up last year, big time. And had you bought it at the beginning of the year, you would be down roughly 60%. And uh, from where you started. So if you'd invested $1,000, uh, you'd have $400 at this point. Ow. That, yeah. that, I could so, say ow again. That's not fun. So it, when we think of the word investment, to be invested in something is really to take on ownership of it, to make it part of who you are, or to wrap yourself in it. If you're invested, you're part of the thing. If you're borrowing a bunch of money, that you have to eventually sell something to pay back. That's not wrapping it around you. You're just buying it to see what it'll do. And in Latin, that's called speculate, uh, to watch, spectate. Uh, that means that you're a speculator. You are not invested. You are hoping this goes up so that you can sell it. And there's another way of looking at that. And this is something I've said about venture capital for a long time. I've done a lot of work with venture capital in my career and never enjoyable by the way and the way i describe them to startup companies that are looking into this stuff is that venture capital they're the people that come to the wedding with the divorce papers signed they are only getting involved so they can take as much as they can but you can't continue without them because they're the only people available that's kind of how i feel about speculators they're buying a company not because they agree with what the company's doing or think that the company is profitable or think that the company is in some way creating value. And you can think about GameStop and a lot of the other meme stocks when you're talking about this. They're not buying it because they think GameStop is going to start being profitable in all its real estate-based stores selling video games on DVD discs when you don't even have a DVD drive on your computer anymore. This is not how people play computer games anymore. People aren't buying that company because they think GameStop is going to do something to become profitable. They're buying that company because other people are shorting the company and it has nothing to do with what's going on in the real world. That's speculation. That's not investing. So from well, our perspective, a, a triple leveraged ETF is not by definition, our definition, an investment. Now, let me give you the other side of the story. And I want to emphasize, we do not recommend you get involved in this, but there is another side of the story. Had you, when the market, the serious short bear market that occurred in 2020, had you noted that everything was dark and gloomy and terrible, and you'd bought that same ETF around March 20th of 2020, it was about $9 a share. It's now about $35 a year. So had you bought it in March at the bottom of the market, now knowing when the bottom of the market is, is really easy looking back, but it's almost impossible to tell going forward. And you had held it till Friday. You would have more than tripled your money. But if you'd bought in January, you'd be down 60%. 60%, right. So you can see so, the attraction, people that are saying, I got to make a lot of money fast. It's gambling. It's like going to the racetracks and hoping. Um, 
that's not something that we think you should base your future success on. (laughs) There's a whole subset of investors out there called market timers. And they say, okay, the market's high. I'm getting out. And then they nose around and say, ah, this is the bottom of the market. I'm getting in. And they move in and out of the market fairly quickly. And they like to magnify their gains and losses because they have this gut feeling that they have charts or they have whatever. I actually watched one of the, an investor do that when I was a broker for several years because he was trading through me as, the, as his broker. Uh, and I could actually saw what he did. And the problem is in a bull market, market timers tend to make more money than other investors. But when the bear comes, it eats the they bowl. generally tend to lose more than they made in the bull market. Uh, therein is the difficulty. Uh, he traded in and out of the market. He was using leverage. He was actually, was before ETFs, he was using mutual funds that were leveraged. Um, he was in a tax deferred position, so he didn't have to pay taxes on the trades. By the way, if you get in and out, you pay a lot of taxes. And he made money and made money and made money. And then along came a bear, uh, a moderately nasty bear. And he, he, this is the amazing thing. He got out at the top, but then the bear went down. Actually, he didn't get out at the top. The, the market dropped. Now, I remember he, the market dropped for the period of time he was me- waiting for it to drop before he was sure it was going to be a bear market. And he got out and he, made, he had made money over this period of time. The day he got out of the market, it surged upward and he waited because he said, this is a fake. This isn't real. The market ultimately was higher when he got back in than it was when he got out. And I measured it. And in a period of about three weeks, he had managed to lose all the money he had made the previous three years. Ouch. And that's basically the way market timing works. I, I tell you who will make money, though. Whoever is trading, whoever you buy the ETF from and through, yeah. and makes a little money every time you do it. And that's kind of goes back to our gambling analogy. The casinos did not get built because they're losing money. Those casinos got built not because you were winning money either. But if you think about like the game of poker, the casino doesn't take a hand in the game they don't get the a chance at the pot but every time someone plays the game they pay the casino that's what these brokers are in this kind of speculative investment the people that are sure to make money in that environment are the brokers now here's the issue with that is that when something is so speculative that when it's way down people stop trading in it even the brokers don't make money then. Uh, and you can see that in the crypto world right now. Not that there's a lot of brokerage fees, but there are brokerage fees. And if you look at the big coin exchanges, they charge something to be in business. You can see somewhere in there that they are making a profit or trying to on the trades. So when the crypto uh, collapse occurred, which, by the way, we're having a second baby collapse in the crypto world in this last week. Uh, it, it is not going up while stocks go down. It's going down faster than the stocks are. Uh, and that shouldn't surprise everyone, but that's kind of what a lot of people were promising. Anyway, in the middle of that, the, the crypto exchanges, which some of them are listed on the, on the exchanges in the United States as a publicly traded company, their profitability is getting eaten up as well because they have a certain number of employees and they're 
overhead is a fairly fixed cost and they were expecting a lot more trading or not a lot more on deposit or not more, a lot more loan fees because anytime you have triple leverage, somebody's making money on the loan unless they lose all the money because it can't get paid back. So the profitability of even the brokers on the most speculative areas is in question, though not at the beginning. At the beginning of these crazy bubbles, the brokers are convinced that this will go on forever. Anyway, that was a very big rabbit trail from triple leveraged. Well, but it also all come back, came back to the same Warren. Yes. I actually didn't mix a metaphor there. I was waiting for you to I, include I, Buffett. No, I mean, I, I was thinking about putting Buffett in there, but that would have been, you know, this is maybe the first time in the history of our program that I started a metaphor and stuck to the same one from beginning to the end. And didn't turn it into a pun. Yeah, although... My tongue has some sores on it from biting so hard to prevent myself from turning it into a pun. Uh, so, you were going to talk about home prices. But I talk about done. home sales because you're all eager to talk about home sales. And then I'm going to probably give a counter argument. So go ahead. Okay. I'm not sure that there's anything to argue about because all I'm going to talk about is the data. I'll try to tell you what that means, but I'm not going to predict on it, which is a little bit odd. Um, I'm looking at data here from Zillow.com, from Realtor.com, and from separately, each of these separate sources of data, and from the National Association of Realtors. Let me kind of start with none of that data is accurate. It's just kind of accurate. What does that mean? When you go to buy or sell a house, if you're going online, so you're uh, part of part of the internet these days, you know, you're not going to the yellow pages to find a broker or you're actually searching online, you find Zillow, you find realtor.com. There's more, there's a series of places you can go. And most people go to a lot of those places. And if they're going to sell their house, they list them there or their broker does. Uh, if they're going to buy a house, they go there first to look around and then they might contact a broker to go see it or just see if they can drive by it. So Zillow and Realtor have this, this is the listing price they don't know what the sales price is because most people don't tell them, yeah, we sold and now we're going to make that public information for what it's sold for. That would cause the county tax assessors to be very pleased if you announced what the sale of your house was, by the way, just, just as a side note. So there's an incentive out there to anonymize that data and to hide it. So the National Association of Realtors has the most accurate numbers on what houses sold for, where Zillow and Realtor have the last listed price. So having said all that, National Association of Realtors said that the median price for houses dropped in June, uh, from June to July, I'm sorry. So for July, the median price of houses went from $413,800 to $403,800. This is in the middle of summer. And what does that mean? Throughout the history of the housing market, um, big sales happen in the summer. People are moving from one house to another. They want to be in the same. They want to be in the school district before it starts. It's easier to move in the summer. You don't have ice all over the roads. This goes way back to as early as we've been able to measure. Even before that, in nomadic societies, you moved from one place to another during the summer months. So it's it's goes deep 
back down into the very roots of humanity. More people move in summer. That means more sales happen in summer. And you can see that very consistently through the data. There's a big spike in sales in the middle of summer. We didn't get much of one this year. There's an upward, but it is significantly lower than prior years, the number of sales that we've had. Now, all of the news is about the price of those houses still rising. Well, now we have the National Association of Realtors saying it actually fell in the summer. So what does that mean? What did it fall from? Well, it fell from June, and June was an absolute record high. So prices have just about never been as high as they are. They're a little bit lower than they were last month. And what does that mean? If, if housing starts are down, if people are more reluctant to buy houses, housing sales is way down. There's a point at which you can't raise the price anymore. 22% of listings, according to Zillow, and I think it's 21% on Realtor.com, have lowered their prices from what they first listed as. That's about one out of five listed at a crazy high price and said, yeah, we can get this if it just keeps going like it has the last few years. And they've lowered those prices. Now, they haven't lowered them a lot. It's about 5 or 10% from an absolutely absurd top. And even during the time periods of the biggest boom, there was a, uh, about 7% of listings had lowered their prices. It's a big difference between 7% and 22%, but we're still not talking about a, anywhere close to a majority. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to leave that to you. In the middle of summer, we're having sales drops when we usually have a sp sales spike. Prices have been going up because we've had these massive sales spikes. The first signal of possible downward prices has occurred, and sales are dropping faster now than they were two months ago. So what does that mean? And you said you were going to have a counter argument, but I haven't really argued. I've just laid out some You're facts. Right. Well, I think there's a reason that we're seeing both the prices and the volume of sales drop, and it's a good reason. If you look back, and there's an article in the Wall Street Journal with data from the National Association of Realtors that takes us back to 2018, and you look at the monthly uh, in that article, you can quickly figure out that the average home sales per month from 2018, 2019, all the way to the pandemic was about 5.4 million, about 5.4 million sales per month. In the bottom of the pandemic, which is, May 31st, 2020, 4.07 million houses sold. Immediately thereafter, now we're talking about July of 2020, it jumps to 5.3 million and stays at or above 6 million for all the way up to it hit a, a, a nice little peak at 6.5 million on January 31st of this year. Right. So we peaked out at the beginning of the year. Right. But this is an interesting point. We don't have a huge increase in people who need to move into houses in the United States demographically. Exactly. So what we had is a bit of a dip, a huge surge that was a reaction to the dip, but the surge continued. So we sold in the last two years, housing transactions have been way above normal, which results in a shortage of houses to buy because too many of them have been sold in essence. I mean, you just there's a supply and demand issue here and you can't create an existing house from nothing. Well, we're not once, about new houses. Once you've created it, it's an existing house, but you have right. to create it and before that it doesn't exist. That's statistics for you. 
We're talking about almost a million houses a month sales above normal. And we're not building for two years. So we're just not building a million houses a month. So you wind up with a house shortage on the tail end and the house shortage causes the prices to go up. And I think we're having a very normal reaction. Interest rates are coming back to normal. Mm -hmm. They're not there yet. They're they're not up to normal yet. Uh, They're not neutral. They're still relatively low. And we've exhausted a lot of people. I mean, we basically exhausted the demand side pretty thoroughly. Most people who wanted to buy a house bought a house. Well, unless they waited till the end and they can't afford the house anymore. And then that's the artificial demand destruction. It still destroys the demand. It's too expensive now. But it really is a natural market reaction to a situation where you have a limited supply and a sudden surge in demand. And at some point, it's got to trail off and we're going to go back into lower numbers than the, than the long-term mean. And then we'll recover back to normal again. Now, when we approach this, one of the things that we're looking at, one of the pieces in the, uh, the leading economic indicators, we talk about those pretty regular on the pro- regularly on the program. We've never had a recession without the leading economic indicators dropping for a while. Well, we've had some little drops. One of the leading indicators is housing starts, and housing starts have fallen. Why, why is housing start a leading economic indicator? Because there are a lot of loans that get made during this process, and a lot of people make profits during a, a, the creation of a house. A construction firm has work generated by it. If they need to make a, get a loan to rent some equipment so that they can get paid for a job, well, then the rental equipment place got some money, and so did the people that made the loan. So leading indicators tend to have a ripple effect in the economy. And anytime you create a house, that's a pretty big ripple effect. Uh, the, the biggest single ripple effect leading indicator in the economy is custom housing starts. And that's a lot harder to measure because custom ones, you don't have this efficiency of purchasing that you get when you're building 20 houses of the same model, which means everybody gets paid more. <laughs> for everything that has a big ripple effect in the economy housing starts are down now a lot of the other indicators are up when we're talking about manufacturing and how we're buying things so we're aware that we've got a bumpy road ahead and the question about whether or not we're going to enter a recession in 12 or 18 months no 18 months i'd say we have a 50 50 chance in the next six months i'd put it at 25 percent Because what I see, just like what you have been saying the last several hours, is the economy is still expanding at as fast a rate as it can. The the, the number of signs that are looking to hire right now, all these signs want to hire people. I don't know why the signs are hiring people. That could be it. The, the, The whole problem is signs are trying to hire people. Everywhere you go, help wanted signs or we're hiring now. It's on all the trucks, it's in all of the restaurant windows, it is in every retail place that you look at. That is not a sign of an existing slowdown. People tend to lay off new hiring. They, need to, they tend to stop hiring as the recession is hitting, not increase their hiring. Uh, the laying off of people tends to be a, a lagging indicator. The new hire issue is a leading indicator, and those are still up. 
They're still trying to hire as many people as possible. So comes back to this is a weird time and it's really awesome that we get to look at all of this stuff and look around. It's most likely that our demographics, the people that are listening to us right now, and for that matter, the average person, if that person actually exists in the United States, that you've got more money in the bank today than you did three years ago, that you have less credit card debt than you did three years ago, and that your investments are looking better than they did three years ago, that you have less debt on your house than you did three years ago. Put all those things together, and that's a pretty healthy outlook for the Joe Average or Jane Average out there. It's hard when people are getting raises, prices are going up, to look at the overall net effect and where we are. Because we've been in like crazy steroid mode, mode for a while. We're lifting cars with a single hand type. Whoa, what, how is that? Well, that's the stimulus money. That's the stuff that's been in flow, input into our society to prevent us from being sick from COVID monetarily. So we had all this stimulus stuff come in to break up what could have been a really nasty recession if people hadn't gotten stimulus money. It's really hard to prove a negative except that we can look back at almost every other plague situation in the history of the United States and before and see that there's a massive unemployment spike that hits only people didn't get paid during that time period so the economy cratered. A lot of money got borrowed by the government to pay people off with this stimulus. Is that healthy for the government? Maybe not so much, but it prevented, almost surely prevented a massive recession at a time when we, it would have been hard to recover. We're looking ahead at the effect of that. We're coming off the steroids now and we're not feeling quite as strong as we did last year. We're still feeling stronger than we did three years ago economically. And you expect some more of that stimulus to drop. The Federal Reserve is going to lower interest rates again. They're, they're selling back into the market rather than dumping money in by buying from the market. They're lowering the steroid drip, but that steroid drip is still there. And as we come kind of gliding out of this, they want no more steroids in the economy. They want to pull it out of the, the system and just see how we're doing without their input. And that's what they call neutral about a three three and a half percent interbank lending rate, which we're still way below. That's no stimulus, but we're not putting the brakes on either. And I think this is a good place for we have to have some slowdown again to fix all the machines that are running at high capacity. If you look at what's happening in the airlines right now, that's exactly what I'm talking about. We have not been able to stop to fix stuff because we've been so busy since the recovery from the pandemic and, and travel. And we can't keep doing that. The, a lot of the airlines are running at capacity for technical issues. They will stop if they go beyond capacity, and that's going to have a big effect. We have to slow down a bit for them to catch up or expand. So that has to happen or things break and, and you have a broken economy. We, we have a repairable economy, and that's what I'm expecting in the next 18 months is that we slow down enough that we can catch up on the repairs and catch up on uh, training our employees to be as productive as the people were before the hiring boom. And that's what I see there. That was a very long winded monologue. Yeah. And right, we we're only about out of time like for this hour. One minute 
one in the left of this hour. So we've we got to tell who we are again. Yeah. Um, we've got another hour coming up where we will talk about just as interesting statistics as what we, yeah. There's a lot of people that are drooling on the floor at this point. But this is the personal wealth coach, and we do actually give personalized, customized fiduciary investment advice and portfolio management to people of of higher net worth. Um, and you can talk to us off the air about that stuff. Uh, we've got voicemail waiting during the weekend, but real live people, no phone trees during the week. Uh, you can find that number locally at... 254-947-1111. Or toll-free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. It's weekly. comes out on Friday evenings. You can read the newsletter going back a long ways on the website. You can download the radio programs going back a long ways and then go to podcasts wherever they are. Contact us through email at jeff or jake at tpwc.com.